This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Church in Montgomery in Colmar, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, this morning we're going to uh, wrap up our study of the book of Acts. We've been going at it for about 21 weeks now, and it's always uh, an interesting dynamic as we do this. We when we try to teach through a book, we try to communicate that the scriptures are more than just uh, sort of an almanac full of little pithy sayings. That uh, every book of the Bible, these letters or these these pieces of literature, that they were written for a purpose and they have a, a message as a whole. At the same time, when you're trying to work your way through a book like Acts with so much action and so much movement and so many important messages it kind of leaves me and many of us as teachers feeling like we did such a terrible job. There are so many pieces that we missed or had to skip over. This morning is no exception. We are going to get to the end of Acts, but if you remember, Pastor Jim left us in Acts 20. So we've, we've got a lot of ground to cover, and I think we can do it this morning. But as we do it, it would help me if, if I know I told you that Uh, Just because we've done this study here doesn't mean, oh, now I've got Acts down. In fact, I've seen often small groups and Bible studies study the very book now, now go back and study it themselves together in kind of more detail, now that you kind of have an overview of the whole piece. Well, we could take some time and talk about where we started. Remember back in Acts 1 and 2 and uh, Jesus' commission to the disciples and to us about taking this message to the whole world starting where they were in Jerusalem, and then moving out from there. And then Acts 2, of course, the Holy Spirit comes, and there's power, and there's all this this demonstration of who God is. And and then we watch that process of the gospel moving out. As it moves out, it hits obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. The first, and not the least of which, was the fact that they crucified the leader of this group. Which is why we titled this series in Acts unstoppable, because the gospel is unstoppable. Killing Jesus didn't stop this message. Uh, Persecuting, killing his followers didn't stop the message. Making laws against it didn't stop the message. It just continued to grow. Well, as I mentioned, Pastor Jim last time, uh, two weeks ago, talked a little bit about from Acts chapter 20, and uh, Paul was there in Ephesus, and this, this church that he had planted, and elders and leaders that he had established and, and we notice that one of the things that's true of ministry, by the way, the mission of the church, we often call it ministry. Uh, the mission is to make disciples, to bring people to faith, build them up in their faith, and then deploy them and release them to do the same. And so that, we often use the word ministry. Pastor Jim talked about the fact that ministry is pass-onable. Did a great job. Um, I was, remember he had a little prop? Remember his little suitcase with little stickers on it? So I, I was going to bring that up and, and use it again today, but when I opened it, there were, like, he had all of his vacation gear in there, like his Speedos and stuff, and uh, <laughs> so I thought, nah, maybe I won't do that. Uh, that was a little scary. Well, if you have your Bibles, open it to Acts chapter 21. If not, you can just listen. I am not reading these passages. We're moving way too quick for that. Uh, but your notes, the sermon notes that you were given, will kind of let you, help you kind of stay with me as we kind of walk through these last few chapters. So in Acts 21, 
Paul has decided that it's time for him to, to leave Ephesus, to leave this area of Asia Minor where he's been ministering, and go back to Jerusalem. And so from here on in, it's him going back to Jerusalem. He, uh, he's telling the, the, those Ephesian leaders, you know, I, I've got to go. And, and, and they don't want him to go. He's been investing a couple of years of his life into them. And now they've heard that in Jerusalem, things might go badly for Paul. And, and so they're, they're beseeching him. They're asking him, oh, please don't go. Please don't go. They walk him down to the beach, down to, the, to get on a ship. Please don't go. But he says, I got to do what the Lord's led me to do. He travels to Tyre, another city. There he finds some more believers. And what's really neat is here, here we are toward the end of the story of Acts. And through each of these little towns where Paul goes, now instead of no one, there are groups of believers. There are churches in these places. So he arrives at Tyre, and the people in the church in Tyre, they come out, Paul, hi, hi, and they welcome him, and they put him up for a few days. In fact, there's a really neat little scene where when he's leaving Tyre, it says that not only did the men from the church walk him out, but the women and the children too. Can't you see the whole church walking out on the beach, and there are tears, and, and, and actually Luke, when he writes it, he says, we, and we, had to, we tore ourselves away from them. You can feel the love that happens as they do ministry together. They go over to the city of Ptolemais. There, again, they find disciples. They stay a few days. Then they move to Caesarea. So they're making their way. And if, if you've seen those maps, you know, we're kind of making our way back to, uh, to Jerusalem. They get to Caesarea. And again, they find believers and they stay with them for a few days. Uh, in Caesarea... The person that cares for him is, is Philip, the evangelist. Remember one of those seven original deacons. Philip has four daughters. They're all prophetesses. They all speak God's word. And, and while he's with them, they're prophesying. Another prophet comes along. They're all saying the same thing. When you go to Jerusalem, it's going to sort of be the last, the last trip. Like, this is it. This is bad. They're all warning him. In fact, and Luke, uh, Luke, as he's writing this, and it, now that Luke has joined Paul in this travel, he uses the, the pronoun we, and he goes, and we all pleaded with him not to go. But he's, <laughs> Paul's great. He says, look, you guys, they're saying I'm going to die. I'm not afraid to die or be in chains. I'm not afraid of anything except not finishing my mission. So as we look at Acts 21, I guess if, if I was going to highlight one important lesson, it's simply this, that ministry friends will always be your best friends. Ministry friends will always be your best friends. At least that's been my experience. Got lots of friends. But those people that you have led to the Lord, or they led you to the Lord, or those that you have worked together with for the sake of the gospel, you have invested in one another and together into something that's eternal. If you're not involved in ministry, you'll never know what it's like to have a friend who, who is better than any that you've ever had. Ministry friends will always be your best friends. Well, at the end of Acts chapter 21, finally, Paul and his group, they get into Jerusalem. And as soon as they arrive in Jerusalem, they meet up with um, the leaders of the Jerusalem church. They see James, uh, they, they see the other leaders, they meet with them. He gives an account. He gives a report. Remember that whole idea of accountability? He gives a report. This is what God's been doing. And while he's there with those elders in Jerusalem, remember the mother church, the mother church, which now is just hanging on by, for dear life, 
It's really the Gentile churches that are thriving already. But the elders say, hey, Paul, I don't know if you've heard, but the word's going around here in Jerusalem to all the Jews that you are now anti-Judaism. Paul says, that's not true. He goes, we know it's not true, but you know what would be great? If you could demonstrate that you still live by our culture, if you were to make a vow before the Lord in the temple and then follow through with that, there were certain demonstrations that came with those vows. And they said, I think that would help people understand you're still living the way that we've learned to live. This was not a biblical issue or a spiritual issue. This was Paul and the elders understanding how they should interact with their culture. Paul says, no problem. I'm happy to to make a vow and keep that vow. And so he goes through that process, which takes us into Acts 22 and 23. As Paul is there near the temple, he's completing his vow. And and again, Jews from those other cities where he's been, they kind of come into town and they start a riot. They start accusing Paul of destroying the temple, bringing Gentiles and uncircumcised people into the temple, defiling it. And they, they just go crazy accusing Paul. The crowd grows so big that uh, the Roman SWAT team is called in. Okay? Roman soldiers come rushing in. It's their job to keep the peace. And so this commander, Claudius, um, steps in. Whoa, so what's going on? And it's so loud and so raucous that he can't really get any understanding. They have to, basically, he tells his men to pick Paul up and carry him out of here before these people tear him to pieces. And so they take him into the barracks for protective custody. And in this process, this commander started, what is going on? And these guys are making all these accusations. Now, everybody knows that a good flogging will clear the mind. At least that's what I told my kids. Uh, and, and so the commander says, hey, take this guy, in here, Paul, in there, flog him good, and let's find out what's really going on. And this, the scripture says that they're just, they're just stretching Paul out to flog him. And while they're doing this, Paul says, uh, hey, by the way, are you allowed to do this since I'm a Roman citizen and there hasn't even been a trial? Of course, just like Peter in prison, they're like, whoops, uh-oh. And so they tell the commander, he's like, oh, we messed up, right? It's kind of like that Facebook post that you wish you never put up there. Yeah, it's, oh, I messed up. So he says, okay, look, we got to let this thing settle down. The next morning, we're going to have a meeting. The next morning, Claudius calls the meeting. Okay, Sanhedrin, you Jewish leaders, come on here. Paul, come in here. What is your problem? And again, these Sanhedrin Uh, these Jewish leaders start accusing Paul and Paul begins to try to explain. There's there's so much in there. At one point, Paul speaks uh, Greek to the Roman commander. And the commander goes, whoa, you speak Greek? He said, I thought you were an Egyptian terrorist. You see, even, even the political culture that we live in today, it's really nothing new. They just didn't have face-scanning recognition technology back then. But in any case, Paul had a chance to address the group. Uh, he talked to, this, to those, the Sanhedrin, and again, he's, he's a former Pharisee, and the Pharisees, he kind of leverages, the, the, and the whole thing explodes again. There's another explosion and riot. They have to carry Paul away again into the barracks for protective custody. Sometimes attention isn't all that helpful. Well, in any case, while uh, Paul is in protective custody, um, a plot is cooked up. Forty men, they are now known as the skinniest men in history. These 40 men promised to not eat and not sleep until they had killed Paul. Since 
They got really skinny. Uh, so they made this promise. Paul's nephew, Paul has a sister, her son. He overhears, he hears about this, runs to Paul. They're going to come in, these 40 guys, they're, they're going to say, bring Paul out, let's have a conversation again. And while they're bringing him out, they're going to they're kill him. These were the beginnings of the Sicarii, you know, those, those guys that would hide with a little kind of knife in a group and just like, and walk away, like precursor to Mission Impossible or whatever, you know. And so Paul says, you go tell the commander. Look, the nephew goes to Claudius, the commander, and he says, uh, there's a bunch of guys going to kill him. The commander knows that his job is to keep people alive until they're guilty of death. And so he says, okay, you know what we're going to do? I can't move this guy safely. Um, let's get him out of town. And so they put him into witness protection, and they, uh, they carry him out with a kind of a large army. They carry him back down to Caesarea, where Paul just came from. So they ship him back down to Caesarea for his own safety. Now, once Paul gets down in Acts 24 to 26, once, once Paul gets back down to Caesarea, Caesarea is governed by a guy by the name of Felix. Felix was an interesting dude. Um, and, and I know that for most of us, myself included, every time I study these things, I have to actually go to books, look up who was who, who was related to who. These, the royalty and the ruling group uh, back then, they were all semi-kind of related. They all hung out together uh, often. And, uh, and so it gets a little confusing. But Felix is unique. You, you'll remember Felix because he was not born into ro- royalty. In fact, Felix was born a slave. Both he and his brother... But between he and his brother, there was a, they, were, they were pretty ambitious. And, and they worked their way to their freedom. And then Felix, especially sly, street smart, he married well, he made the right friends, and he moved up and moved up until he became the governor of this province. Now Felix, uh, Felix was a, a, a smart guy. In fact, it says later on that he, he knew all about the way. He, he had already heard the gospel from these Jesus' people, he talked to people. Now, Felix talked to people mostly so that he could use it to his own advantage. He was always leveraging one person against another, always looking for a bribe, always looking for a payout. Every interaction ought to benefit him in some way. That was Felix. Well, since now Paul is back in Caesarea under Felix's governing, uh, now the, the commander, Claudius, says, uh, Sir, I guess now it's your job to decide what he did wrong and what kind of punishment he deserves. And so Felix and his wife, Drusilla, they have a little trial. They have a little meeting with Paul. Now, I got to say, you think Felix was interesting. Drusilla is a pretty interesting person too, his wife. Drusilla, um, well, let's see. Her father is the one that killed the apostle James. It was her great uncle, Herod Antipas, who killed John the Baptist. And it was her great-grandfather, Herod, who killed all the babies in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Okay? An interesting lineage this girl comes from. Okay? So now Drusilla and Felix are sitting there listening to Paul, and they're asking their questions, and they're having this discussion. Felix has no interest whatsoever in figuring out whether Paul is guilty or, or innocent. He could care less. But he is kind of hoping that somebody on one side or the other will offer him some money to make a decision. So he's letting these discussions go on and go on. In fact, he let those discussions go on off and on for two full years. It was almost like entertainment. Hey, you want to go talk to that guy, Paul? <laughs> he's, a, he's a piece of work, isn't he? 
And, and they would go and they would talk to him and they'd listen. And of course, all that time, Felix is like, um, so anybody, uh, anybody? Opportunist. Although the scriptures record something interesting that every time, and, and you're going to have to go back and read it in those chapters, but every time Paul is asked to give an account, why are you here? What did you do wrong? What's the accusation? He gets off of those issues and he gets right back on the gospel. Right back to the gospel. Paul was always gospel-centered. It didn't matter whether he was guilty or innocent. It didn't matter what the Sanhedrin said. It didn't matter what you're going to do to me. The issue is, do you know who Jesus was, is, and what are you going to do with him? He always brought it back. So much so that at one point it records that even though Felix and Drusilla, they want to talk to Paul. I mean, they're in charge. They don't have to listen to him if they don't want to. They're asking to talk. But at one point it says, Felix became afraid. I think the, the idea is really convicted. Paul was drilling down so hard with the gospel and the need to be saved that even Felix, street smart Felix, went, okay, I, I am out, I'm out. And, and they withdrew and he never went and saw Paul again. Well, two years go by, eventually Felix is replaced. And during... During Felix's rule, uh, Jerusalem and that, that, I mean, Caesarea and that area, it really became increasingly more violent. Uh, a lot of crime, again, all this bribery. And it seems like maybe, so he was shipped off, went back to Rome. Somebody, a new guy was brought in to kind of take over and fix the mistakes that Felix had made. His name was Festus. So some of you moms, you're looking for good Bible names for your boys, you know. I mean, a, a couple of twin boys, Felix and Festus, I mean, I... I if it weren't for the fact that they're really scoundrels, uh, I, that'd be a lot of fun. Uh, the only Festus I know is from Gunsmoke. Anyway, um, <laughs> most of you are like, huh? Okay, reruns, folks, reruns. So Festus comes on the scene. Now, Festus is very different from Felix. Festus has virtually no experience whatsoever. He's, a, he's a kind of a dope. He wants to prove that he's got what it takes. He's got the chops to rule but he really doesn't have a clue what he's doing. And to make a long story short, uh, Festus arrives. He inherits this problem of Paul. So Paul says, well, uh, I mean, Festus says, well, what am I going to do? The Sanhedrin says, well, you know what? Rather than you trying to figure this out because you're not an expert in the law, why don't we just take Paul back to Jerusalem where all the experts are and we'll figure it out there. Festus is clueless to this plot to kill Paul. And he's like, huh, that would, yeah, you know what? That would be a, yep. That'd be a good idea. What do you think? Paul says, uh-uh. No, you're not sending me back to Jerusalem. I know what's going to happen there. And so it's here when faced with that opportunity, are, are you going to be sent back to Jerusalem? He says, no, instead, because I'm a Roman citizen, I'm going to appeal to Caesar directly. Now, at first, I think Festus probably went, whew, thank goodness. Thank goodness, because I, I, I don't have a clue what to do with you. So, great, let's, let's just hand him off. But I think as time went on, Festus probably realized, wait a minute, I'm going to send Paul to my boss's boss. And my boss's boss is going to say, why did he send you here? I better figure out why I'm sending him. What are the charges? What's wrong? The problem is that Felix couldn't find anything that was actually worthy of punishment. Festus can't find anything that's really worthy of punishment. Nobody finds a reason to actually arrest or punish Paul. He hasn't done anything that the Roman government would even care about. 
You've ticked off some Jewish religious people. That is not a crime in my book. And yet, politically, he's got to do something. When was the last time you heard about people being stuck in a political spot where there was a right thing to do, a wrong thing to do, they had to do something just so it looked like they were doing something? (laughs) Yeah. So, in the midst of all of these different examinations, and, and well, I should, before I get there, um, while Festus is trying to figure this thing out, he gets a visit from Agrippa, another ruler. I'm not going to bore you. He's related to some of the other Agrippas. Uh, this Agrippa, Agrippa II, really small-time guy, he has less authority than, than Festus. Okay? The one thing that Agrippa II has going for him, uh, besides he's married to Bernice, who is Felix's wife's sister, Okay, I'm serious. If, if I can show you, I had to draw this stuff on a piece of paper so I could keep it straight. But Agrippa was a super mystical, faithful kind of, he was really Jewish. Not, not in quality of person so much, but he really, he really got into all the mysticism and all the pieces of Judaism, and he loved playing all those parts. He was sort of his own Jewish law expert. And so when he arrives, Festus goes, oh, thank goodness, you're really into this stuff. Why don't you and Bernice listen to this guy? You tell me what you think. And Agrippa goes, this, oh, I, I, I've been wanting to talk to this guy. I can't wait. And so now Agrippa II has a trial, a talk with Paul. What's so powerful here, and again, you'll have to go back to Acts 25 and 26 and read it for yourself. As soon as he's in front of Agrippa, now, I don't know how you would react if you felt like you were on trial. You would probably, like me, feel like my job is to kind of get myself out of this. Paul goes right for the gospel. So he's talking to Agrippa and he goes, Agrippa, hey, I know you, and I happen to know that you believe the prophets, don't you? Don't you believe the Old Testament scriptures? You live by them? So let me ask you something. Don't you agree that Jesus is the Messiah that they talked about? He goes right for his throat. Just like, in fact, it's so intense that at one point, it's Agrippa II who goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Paul, you're talking like you think you're going to convert me on the spot. What would make Agrippa II say that? Paul was trying to convert him on the spot. You better believe it. Do you know people, even though you're a Christian, they almost wear you out because all they do is talk about figuring out how to share the gospel to the next person. Do you know somebody like that? Are you somebody like that? When I got saved, I, was got, I got saved by a bunch of zealots, college, Bible college students, and they were like that. They witnessed to everything. I thought that was normal, so that's what I did. My wife used to make fun of me. She goes, he'll, he'll witness to a wooden Indian, anything that stands still. My best friend used to be going, he'd drive down the road, he would stop the car, walk back to the bus stop, and, and witness to the people sitting at a bus stop. <laughs> you know what? That's exactly what Paul was like. Every chance he had, he took that conversation and turned it towards, so, hey, by the way, what do you know about Jesus? Who do you think he is? And what are you counting on? You see... Throughout Acts 24 to 26, there are all these different examinations, all these different examiners, but Paul always gives the same answer. He's gospel-centered. 
focused on sharing the gospel. Maybe this week you're going to have a chance to hear someone over, uh, you know, over, overhear someone talking about their position on immigration. Their position on the economy. Their position on legalizing marijuana. Wondering what your position is. You're a church person. What do you think about this whole same-sex marriage now? How do you do whatever? And what about transgender? And what, they're going to ask your opinion, perhaps. You're going to get... Paul always took that conversation and brought it back to really the only thing that mattered. What about legal immigration? I, I, you know what? I, it's really, I can tell it's really complicated. I do know this, though, that I know what it's like to be lost. And I know what it's like to know that the only hope I have is if someone grants me forgiveness and asylum. I never deserved it. Did I ever tell you about that? What do you think about transgender people and same-sex marriage? You can't be for that, can you? Wow, I, actually, I'm, I'm not, I don't think anybody really cares what I'm for or what I'm not for. I can tell you this, though, that regardless of what the internal struggles are, all of us struggle because we know we don't stand before God. There's only one way I know to take care of that. Did I ever tell you about that? I could do this all day, guys. We could take every circumstance, any circumstance, whatever you're at. Now, you're saying, well, that's you, Mike, not me. I understand that. I'm not smarter than you. I, don't do, I didn't learn any of this in Bible college. You know, you know where it comes from, though? And, and there are people that are so much, some of you are better at it than me. But here's the point. We practice. We practice. Sometimes you walk away from conversation, you go, I probably could have done something with that. I'm just not sure what. That's the right response. Paul was so gospel-centered. He didn't really care about the answers, except this. Who is Jesus to you? What would stop you from putting your faith in him as your Savior? Well, the story goes on. We, as we continue to move along in uh, Acts 27 then, uh, after all these different examinations, eventually somebody says, okay, well, we can't figure out anything. In fact, Festus, Agrippa, they're walking along. They say, um, actually, this guy would have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. We got nothing on him. But he said he wants to go before Caesar, so let's put him on a boat, send him to Rome. And so in Acts 27 starts um, Paul's cruise of a lifetime. Now, if you don't know anything about this, this cruise, it's, it's the cruise from heck, okay? I mean, it's just the, it's the trip that you thought that retrovirus thing on one of those cruise ships was bad. <laughs> That's nothing compared to this. They put Paul in, uh, on a ship. They're going to get him back to Rome. And there's all kinds of maritime stories, all kind of travel from here to there, and storms that delayed them, and how they landed here and there. By the way, as you read that stuff and you think, blah, 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 I don't know these places, know this. One of the things that's so interesting is that all those details that Luke gives about their trip, historians have gone back and said, that's exactly what someone on that ship would have written. That's exact. It, it sort of uh, confirms the historicity of the account. Well, in any case, this ship ends in a shipwreck, a, a storm, a 14-day storm. And during all of that, Paul is ministering to the people around him and trying to encourage them. He's also trying to give them instruction. Eventually, they think they spot land, but they have no idea where they are. 
The next morning, they cut the anchors and they let the ship crash on the beach. Unfortunately, there's a reef between them and the beach. And so the the ship breaks up and guys are floating to the shore. They find out they're on the island of Malta. By the way, the Apostle Paul is still the patron saint of that island of Malta. You can go there today. And the people from Malta, they they scoop these guys up from this broken ship and they they patch them up and and they, they put them up for a while. And of course, what does Paul do? He shares the gospel. In fact, the ruler of Malta has a family member who's sick. Paul says, could I see him? Goes in, heals him. <laughs> and, 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 and people become believers. Now, when we read about that whole storm and shipwreck, to be honest, it's really not fair. After everything that Paul has been through, why would Paul then put him on a ship that's going to wreck And I think maybe a lesson for us is that um, it's not a question of if you and your family are going to go through a storm. It's just a question of when. Which one? What kind? We've got a saying in our house, I'm not going to dare worse. Somebody has something like, oh, I can't believe I had a car accident and now I'm going to have pain in my leg my whole life. You know, it it couldn't get any worse. (laughs) There are so many things that I think could be worse. But this is your trial. This is your, this is your storm. And if there's lessons that come out of even this account of Paul, it's that God is closest to those who need him most. He's closest to those who are saying, I got nothing here. I have absolutely nothing left in the tank. That's when he shows up. You and I, we're all going to go through some storms, but when we enter those storms, please don't waste all your energy saying, why me? Why me? Your and my job instead is to keep trusting him in the midst of that. He's got a plan. I don't know what it is. It doesn't have to turn out all roses for me. Lord, what's your plan here? How do you want to move the gospel and the kingdom forward? What's your plan? Our job in the middle of those storms is to keep trusting and keep serving other people. When everyone else is busy taking care of themselves, that's when your service for Christ will shine the brightest. Acts 27 to 28, the end of the book. Paul finally makes it to Rome. And what's interesting about that, the ending there is that that when Paul gets to Rome, we basically have a record that they take him to a rented home. They chain him up there. He's not allowed to leave, but he has a great deal of freedom. Friends, others can come and visit with him. He can teach. He can, and and so, but I got to be honest. At first, with everything that Paul's been doing, it doesn't it seem kind of like a waste for God to have Paul chained up in a house in Rome instead of continuing to travel the countryside planting churches? It would be easy if you were a relative of Paul's, you would be shaking your fist at God and saying, okay, I don't get this. He's your best tool. He's your best mouthpiece. And you just leave him sitting chained in a house. What a waste. And God would probably answer like he does to me, not your business. 
Not your problem, Mike. But more than that, I have a plan. Believe it or not, I know what I'm doing. Why would God waste Paul chained to a house in Rome? Well, first of all, I think if Paul were here, he'd say, hang on, wait a minute. The house, it's dry. It's warm. I get fed every day and nobody beats me. It's not a bad deal. But more than that, I'm here. People can come and go. I can talk with people all day long. And we already know he could. He could talk to people all day long. But probably the thing that we would easily overlook is the fact that while he's there, since he can't go back like he has so many times, how many times do we see him go back to those churches that he planted and revisit them and encourage them and strengthen them? Churches aren't just planted and then released. They need constant feeding and encouragement and direction. Well, he can't go to those churches anymore, so do, do you know what he did? He wrote those churches letters. The churches in, around Thessalonica, he wrote two letters, first and second Thessalonians. To, the, to the, that church in Ephesus, he wrote Ephesians. To the people, the believers in Philippi, Philippians. To the people in Corinth, to those churches scattered around Galatia. To the church that was planted in Colossae, Colossians. Did you know that by planting Paul in Rome during that time, God made sure that there would be guidance for every church for the rest of time. God knew exactly what he was doing. But later in the summer, we're going to take some time and we're going to actually look at some of those books. We're going to take like one Sunday per epistle. We'll look at Ephesians, we'll look at Colossians, we'll, look at the, we'll examine those a little bit. But that's what Paul was doing. He was, his time was not wasted. So now, let's wrap up. One simple question. How should we act on the book of Acts? The answer to that is found in the next chapter, Acts 29. Turn there, if you will. Okay, I'm not going to let you do it, because some of you already know, and the rest of you who don't know, you're going to turn, and then you're going to feel stupid. There isn't an Acts 29. Do you know why? Because it's still being written. The rest of the story of Acts is still being written. And we are a part of that story. It's like a relay race, right? I mean, it's obvious to all of you that I was a track star. So, you know, I actually did run, uh, but not all that effectively. But, you know, if you know what something like this is, you know what a relay race looks like. The idea is that one runner runs his leg, and then he hands this baton to the next, and they run their leg. It's a relay race. The gospel's work through churches is a relay race. We are receiving the baton from that next generation. Although, it really, the baton goes not to me individually, right? It goes to all of us. This is, this is sort of small. We need a church-sized baton. Okay, there we go. So, um, 
we are being held, we're being handed this baton. You see all those ancestry commercials, right? Besides the ones where they're finding criminals with it. Um, but hey, all those ancestry commercials where, you know, some blue-eyed guy is checking back and, and you, what, what do you learn? Those were my people. Those were my people. I used to tell Cindy that, you know, my, I, I just, I kind of love adventure. I want to go on adventures. And she didn't really understand that until she met my sister, who she and her husband sailed around the world for seven years without a land address. Or my uncle, who's made, I think, six or seven trips to Africa for big game hunting, you know. And she starts looking at all these pictures. She goes, they're your people. Yep, <laughs> those are your people. The people that we have just read about, not just Paul, but the people in those churches, they're our people. Now it's our turn. What did you think this was? A country club? Did you think that this was a nice thing that we like to do on Sunday? I'm going to suggest that Jesus is much less interested in the fact that you and I are here. He's probably much more interested in who isn't here yet. Who should be here? Who could be here? Who needs to hear this message? Now, the gospel in Acts was unstoppable. Can I just ask you a question? <clears throat> is that how church feels like to you? Unstoppable? So, I don't know about you, but sometimes church feels very stoppable to me. Church feels quite avertable. We're easily distracted. We're easily waylaid. Now, in Acts, let's be honest, the individual players, they were stoppable. I mean, John the Baptist, he got stopped. James, he got stopped. Stephen, stopped. Eventually, Peter, stopped. John, Paul, stopped. John, Stopping the individuals was one thing, but the movement couldn't be stopped because the movement was anchored in the gospel. There is only one way that we, as God's people, on this spot, there's only one way that we will not be stoppable. Otherwise, we'll just stop like happens to so many others. In a culture where sometimes it feels like we don't matter anyway, there won't even, we'll go out without a whimper. No big deal. The only way that doesn't happen is if we intentionally, consistently hook, anchor ourselves to the gospel. We are centered on the gospel. We're not centered on anything else but that message that Jesus was the Messiah, that God is redeeming the world back to himself. And just like sin started in the heart of one person, the reformation starts in the hearts of one person at a time. And the change moves out from there. It's not just about a ticket to heaven. It's about having purpose in your life and being a part of what God's doing to bring about the restoration of his kingdom. There were a lot of things that the church in Acts could have gotten all excited about. Uh, oh, they're remodeling the temple. Yay! The Christians, okay, whatever. Hey, did you hear who's going to be our new governor? Uh, no. Yeah, not really. Hmm. Doesn't really matter. There's so many things that could have divided 
their attention. They kept snapping back to the one thing that mattered. There's a saying that says, comfort makes cowards of us all. We've been pretty comfortable. And after all, we don't want to be a one-hit wonder. I I don't want to be so shallow that the only thing I talk about is Jesus. I'm not suggesting that that's what we're like. But is that, is that the problem? Oh, you guys are just way too focused that you, you don't even say hello to people, you just start giving the gospel like that's our problem? Probably not. Today, Cindy and I get to go to a birthday party for a neighbor. They invited us. It was so delightful. And, and all day, the last few days, I've been trying to figure out, I wonder how and where I could get a chance to explain the gospel to this young man who just graduated from Harvard with a PhD in biology. I can't wait. I don't know how it's going to work. But we have to go into every day anticipating that God's going to open a way for us to share the gospel. So, is there something that has been capturing your attention other than the gospel? What is it? Maybe it's your hobby. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's your favorite beverage. Maybe it's... uh, the, the movies you like. Maybe it's the, is there something that's capturing your attention? It's something that's conscripting your allegiance. And eventually, it constrains our ardor. It constrains our love. We're just mildly in love with Jesus. Kind of like, you know, 30, 40, 50 year old marriages, right? hey, I told you I loved you. If that changes, I'll let you know. See, we think that's normal. I'm not sure even that's supposed to be normal, but that's what happens with inattention. Is that where we are in our love for Christ? Or do we really think, do you really think that there is nothing on earth more important than your relationship with Jesus and sharing that with someone else. Let's pray. The believers that we saw in the book of Acts, they were given a great mission. Sometimes I'm afraid that we, because of our comfort and because of all of the other options that are open to us, I'm afraid that we have taken what is a great mission and turned it into a good mission And everybody knows that good is the enemy of great. The one thing that made them unstoppable was the gospel that they were anchored to. I just ask you this question. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, what would stop you from accepting the gift of life today? He purchased it with his blood. He gives it as a gift because you could never earn it anyway. What would stop you from trusting Christ? And if you are a believer, what is it that's more important than this in your life? Paul made it clear in Hebrews 12. The writer of Hebrews writes this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. May we be reignited with a passion to do just what they did. Sharing the gospel was the most important thing in their lives. May it be true of us too. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your grace and love. Jesus, thank you for saving us. And we admit that sometimes all it takes is for us to sing a song and to think back and, and we're so personally warmed and thankful for what you've done. But sometimes, sometimes it doesn't translate into action in our lives on a daily basis. We just confess that to you right now. And we ask that you would begin to prod us and remind us and challenge us. May we be one-hit wonders. May we be people who know nothing more important than this message of the gospel. And then open doors, help us to have opportunities to share. May many know you just like we have come to know you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.